Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. Second Night Out by Frank Belknap Long It was past midnight when I left my stateroom. The upper promenade deck was entirely deserted and thin wisps of fog hovered about the deck chairs and curled and uncurled about the gleaming rails. There was no air stirring. The ship moved forward sluggishly through a quiet, fog-enshrouded sea. But I did not object to the fog. I leaned against the rail and inhaled the damp, murky air with a positive greediness. The almost unendurable nausea, the pervasive physical and mental misery had departed, leaving me serene and at peace. I was again capable of experiencing sensuous delight, and the aroma of the brine was not to be exchanged for pearls and rubies. I had paid an exorbitant coinage for what I was about to enjoy. For the five brief days of freedom and exploration in glamorous sea-splendid Havana, which had been promised by an enterprising and I hoped reasonably honest tourist agent, I am in all respects the antithesis of a wealthy man, and I had drawn so heavily upon my bank balance to satisfy the greedy demands of the Lowerland Tours, Inc., that I had been compelled to renounce such really indispensable amenities as after-dinner cigars and ocean-privileged sherry and chartreuse. But I was enormously content. I paced the deck and inhaled the moist, pungent air. For thirty hours I had been confined to my cabin with a sea illness more debilitating than bubonic plague or malignant sepsis. But having at length managed to squirm from beneath its iron heel, I was free to enjoy my prospects. They were enviable and glorious. Five days in Cuba, with the privilege of driving up and down the sun-drenched Malecon in a flamboyantly upholstered limousine, and an opportunity to feast my discerning gaze on the pink walls of the Cabanas and the Columbus Cathedral and La Fuerza, the great storehouse of the Indies. Opportunity also to visit sunlit patios and center by iron-barred rejas and to sip refrescos by moonlight in open-air cafes and to acquire, incidentally, a Spanish contempt for big business and the strenuous life. Then on to Haiti, dark and magical, and the Virgin Islands, and the quaint, incredible old-world harbor of Charlotte Amalie, with its shimmerless, red-roofed houses rising in tears to the quiet stars, the natural sargasso, the inevitable last port of call for rainbow fishes, diving boys, and old ships with sun-bleached funnels and incurably drunken skippers, a flaming opal set in an amphitheater of malachite, its allure blazed forth the gray fog and dispelled my northern spleen. I leaned against the rail and dreamed also of Martinique, which I would see in a few days, and of the Indian and Chinese women of Trinidad. And then suddenly a dizziness came upon me. The ancient and terrible malady had returned to plague me. Seasickness, unlike all other major afflictions, is a disease of the individual. No two people are ever afflicted with precisely the same symptoms. 
The manifestations range from a slight malaise to a devastating impairment of all one's faculties. I was afflicted with the gravest symptoms imaginable. Choking and gasping, I left the rail and sank helplessly down into one of the three remaining deck chairs. Why the steward had permitted the chairs to remain on deck was a mystery I couldn't fathom. He had obviously shirked a duty, for passengers did not habitually visit the promenade deck in the small hours, and foggy weather plays havoc with the wicker work of steamer chairs. But I was too grateful for the benefits which his negligence had conferred upon me to be excessively critical. I lay sprawled at full length, grimacing and gasping and trying fervently to assure myself that I wasn't nearly as sick as I felt. And then all at once, I became aware of an additional source of discomfiture. The air exuded an unwholesome odor. It was unmistakable. As I turned about, as my cheek came to rest against the damp, varnished wood, my nostrils were assailed by an acrid and alien odor of a vehement, cloying potency. It was at once stimulating and indescribably repellent. In a measure, it assuaged my physical unease, but also filled me with a most overpowering revulsion with a sudden hysterical and almost frenzied distaste. I tried to rise from the chair, but the strength was gone from my limbs. An intangible presence seemed to rest upon me and weigh me down, and then the bottom seemed to drop out of everything. I am not being facetious. Something of the sort actually occurred. The base of the sane, familiar world vanished, was swallowed up. I sank down. Limitless gulf seemed open beneath me, and I was immersed, lost in a gray void. The ship, however, did not vanish. The ship, the deck, the chair continued to support me, and yet, in despite the retention of these outward symbols of reality, I was afloat in an unfathomable void. I had the illusion of falling, of sinking helplessly down through an eternity of space. It was as though the chair which supported me had passed into another dimension without ceasing to leave the familiar world as though it floated simultaneously both in our three-dimensional world and in another world of alien, unknown dimensions. I became aware of strange shapes and shadows all about me. I gazed through illimitable dark gulfs at continents and islands, lagoons, atolls, vast gray waterspouts. I sank down into the great deep. I was immersed in dark slime. The boundaries of sense were dissolved away, and the breath of an active corruption blew through me, gnawing at my vitals and filling me with extravagant torment. I was alone in the great deep, and the shapes that accompanied me in my utter abysmal isolation were shriveled and black and dead, and it cavorted deliriously with little monkey heads, with streaming, sea-drenched viscera and putrid pupilless eyes. And then slowly the unclean vision dissolved. I was back again in my chair, and the fog was as dense as ever and the ship moved forward steadily through the quiet sea. But the odor was still present, acrid, overpowering, revolting. I leapt from the chair in profound alarm. I experienced a sense of having emerged from the bowels of some stupendous and unearthly encroachment, of having in a single instant exhausted the resources of Earth's malignity and drawn upon untapped and intolerable reserves. I have gazed without flinching at the turbulent, demon-seething, utterly benighted infernos of the Italian and Flemish primitives. I have endured with calm vision the major inflictions of Hieronymus Bosch and Lucas Cranach, and I have not quailed even before the worst perversities of the elder Brugel. Those outrageous gargoyles and ghouls and cacodemons are so self-contained that they foster with an overbrimming malignancy 
and seemed about to burst asunder and dissolve hideously in a black and intolerable froth. But not even Signorelli's soul of the damned or Goya's Los Caprichos, or the hideous ooze-encrusted sea-shapes with half-assembled bodies and dead pupilless eyes, which dragged themselves slightly through Segrel's blue worlds of fetter and decay, were as unnerving and ghastly as the flickering visual sequence which had accompanied my perception of the odor. I was vastly and terribly shaken. I got indoors somehow into the warm and steamy interior of the upper saloon and waited, gasping for the deck steward to come to me. I pressed a small button labeled Deck Steward in the wainscoting adjoining the central stairway, and I frantically hoped that he would arrive before it was too late, before the odor outside percolated into the vast, deserted saloon. The steward was a daytime official, and it was a cardinal crime to fetch him from his berth at one in the morning. But I had to have someone to talk to, and as the steward was responsible for the chairs, I naturally thought of him as a logical target for my interrogations. He would know. He would be able to explain. The order would not be familiar to him. He would be able to explain about the chairs. About the chairs. About the chairs. I was growing hysterical and confused. I wiped the perspiration from my forehead with the back of my hand and waited with relief for the steward to approach. He had come suddenly into view above the top of the central stairway, and he seemed to advance toward me through a blue mist. He was extremely solicitous, extremely courteous. He bent above me and laid his hand concernedly upon my arm. Yes, sir. What can I do for you, sir? A bit under the weather, perhaps? What can I do? 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 It was horribly confusing. I could only stammer. The, the chairs. Steward, on the deck. Three chairs. Why did you leave them there? Why didn't you take them inside? It wasn't what I had intended asking him. I had intended questioning him about the odor. But the strain, the shock had confused me. The first thought that came into my mind on seeing the steward standing above me so solicitous and concerned was that he was a hypocrite and a scoundrel. He pretended to be concerned about me, and yet, out of sheer perversity, he had prepared the snare which had reduced me to a pitiful and helpless wreck. He had left the chairs on deck deliberately, with a cruel and crafty malice, knowing all the time, no doubt, that something would occupy them. But I wasn't prepared for the almost instant change in the man's demeanor. It was ghastly. Befuddled as I had become, I could perceive at once that I had done him a grave, a terrible injustice. He hadn't known. All the blood drained out of his cheeks, and his mouth fell open. He stood immobile before me, completely inarticulate, and for an instant I thought he was about to collapse, to sink helplessly down upon the floor. You saw chairs? He gasped at last. I nodded. The steward leaned toward me and gripped my arm. The flesh of his face was completely destitute of luster. From the parchment white oval, his two eyes, to mess with fright, stared wildly down at me. It's the black dead thing, he muttered. The monkey face. I knew it would come back. It always comes aboard at midnight on the second night out. He gulped and his hand tightened on my arm. It's always on the second night out. It knows where I keep the chairs, and it takes him on deck and sits in them. I saw it last time. It was squirming about in the chair lying stretched out and squirming horribly. Like an eel, it sits in all three of the chairs. When it saw me, it got up and started toward me. But I got away. I came in here and shut the door. But I saw it through the window. The steward raised his arm and pointed. There. Through that window there. Its face was pressed against the glass. It was all black and shriveled and eaten away. 
a monkey face, sir, so help me. The face of a dead, shriveled monkey, and wet, dripping. I was so frightened I couldn't breathe. I just stood and groaned, and then it went away. He gulped. Dr. Blodgett was mangled, clawed to death at ten minutes to one. We heard his shrieks. The thing went back, I guess, and sat in the chairs for thirty or forty minutes after it left the window. Then it went down to Dr. Blodgett's day at a room and took his clothes. It was horrible. Dr. Blodgett's legs were missing, and his face was crushed to a pulp. There were claw marks all over him, and the curtains of his berth were drenched with blood. The captain told me not to talk, but I've got to tell someone. I can't help myself, sir. I'm afraid. I've got to talk. This is the third time it's come aboard. It didn't take anybody the first time, but it sat in the chairs. It left them all wet and slimy, sir, all covered with black, stinking slime. I stared in bewilderment. What was the man trying to tell me? Was he completely unhinged? Or was I too confused, too ill myself to catch all that he was saying? He went on wildly. It's hard to explain, sir, but this boat is visited. Every voyage, sir, on the second night out. And each time it sits in the chairs. Do you understand? I didn't understand, clearly. But I murmured a feeble assent. My voice was appallingly tremulous, and it seemed to come from the opposite side of the saloon. Something out there, I gasped. It was awful. Out there, you hear? An awful odor. My brain. I can't imagine what's come over me, but I feel as though something were pressing on my brain. Here. I raised my fingers and passed them across my forehead. Something here. Something. The steward appeared to understand perfectly. He nodded and helped me to my feet. He was still self-engrossed, still horribly wrought up but I could sense that he was also anxious to reassure and assist me. Stateroom 16D. Yes, of course, steady, sir. The steward had taken my arm and was guiding me toward the central stairway. I could scarcely stand erect. My decrepitude was so apparent, in fact, that the steward was moved by compassion to the display of an almost heroic attentiveness. Twice I stumbled and would have fallen had not the guiding arm of my companion encircled my shoulders and levitated my sagging bulk. Just a few more steps, sir. That's it. Just take your time. There isn't anything will come of it, sir. You'll feel better when you're inside with the fan going. Just take your time, sir. At the door of my stateroom, I spoke in a hoarse whisper to the man at my side. I'm all right now. I'll ring if I need you. Just let me get inside. I want to lie down. Does this door lock from the inside? Why, yes. Yes, of course. But maybe I'd better get you some water. No, don't bother. Just leave me, please. Well, all right, sir. Reluctantly, the steward departed after making certain that I had a firm grip on the handle of the door. The stateroom was extremely dark. I was so weak that I was compelled to lean with all my weight against the door to close it. It shut with a slight click, and the key fell out upon the floor. With a groan, I went down on my knees and groveled apprehensively with my fingers on the soft carpet, but the key eluded me. I cursed I was about to rise when my hand encountered something fibrous and hard. I started back, gasping. Then frantically my fingers slid over it in a hectic effort at appraisal. It was, yes, undoubtedly, a shoe. And sprouting from it, an ankle. The shoe reposed firmly on the floor of the stateroom. The flesh of the ankle beneath the sock which covered it was very cold. In an instant I was on my feet circling like a caged animal about the narrow dimensions of the stateroom. My hand slid over the walls, the ceiling of only dear God. 
the electric light button would not continue to elude me. Eventually, my hands encountered a rubbery excrescence on the smooth panels. I pressed resolutely, and the darkness vanished to reveal a man sitting upright on a couch in the corner, a stout, well-dressed man, holding a grip and looking perfectly composed. Only his face was invisible. His face was concealed by a handkerchief, a large handkerchief which had obviously been placed there intentionally, perhaps as a protection against the rather chilly air currents from the unshuttered port. The man was obviously asleep. He had not responded to the tugging of my hands on his ankles in the darkness, and even now he did not stir. The glare of the electric light bulbs above his head did not appear to annoy him in the least. I experienced a sudden and overwhelming relief. I sat down beside the intruder and wiped the sweat from my forehead. I was still trembling in every limb, but the calm appearance of the man beside me was tremendously reassuring. A fellow passenger, no doubt, who had entered the wrong compartment. It should not be difficult to get rid of him. A mere tap on the shoulder, followed by a courteous explanation, and the intruder would vanish. A simple procedure, if only I could summon the strength to act with decision. I was so horribly enfeebled, so incredibly weak and ill, but at last I mustered sufficient energy to reach out my hand and tap the intruder on the shoulder. I'm sorry, sir, I murmured, but you've got into the wrong stateroom. If I wasn't a bit under the weather, I'd ask you to stay and smoke a cigar with me, but you see I... With a distorted effort at a smile, I tapped the stranger again nervously. I'd rather be alone, if so if you don't mind. Sorry I had to wake you. Immediately I perceived that I was being premature. I had not waked the stranger. The stranger did not budge. Did not so much as agitate by his breathing the handkerchief which concealed his features. I experienced a resurgence of my alarm. Tremulously I stretched forward my hand and seized the corner of the handkerchief. It was an outrageous thing to do, but I had to know. If the intruder's face matched his body, if it was composed and familiar, all would be well. But if for any reason, the fragment of physiognomy revealed by the uplifted corner was not reassuring. With a gasp of fright, I tore the handkerchief completely away. For a moment, a moment only, I stared at the dark and repulsive visage, with his staring corpse-white eyes, viscid and malignant, its flat simian nose, hairy ears, and thick black tongue that seemed to leap up at me from out of the mouth. The face moved as I watched it wiggled and squirmed revoltingly, while the head itself shifted its position, turning slightly to one side and revealing a profile more bestial and kangaroonious and unclean than the brunt of its countenance. I shrank back against the door. In frenzied dismay, I suffered as an animal suffers. My mind, deprived by shock of all capacity to form concepts, agonized instinctively at a brutish level of consciousness. Yet, through it all, one mysterious part of myself remained horribly observant. I saw the tongue snap back into the mouth, saw the lines of the features shrivel and soften until presently, from the slavering mouth and white sightless eyes, there began to trickle three thin streams of blood. In another moment, the mouth was a red slit and a splotched horror of countenance a red slit rapidly widening and dissolving in an amorphous crimson flood. The horror was hideously and repellently dissolving into the basal sustenance of all life. It took the steward nearly ten minutes to restore me. He was compelled to force spoonsful of brandy between my tightly locked teeth, to bathe my forehead with ice water and to massage almost savagely my wrists and ankles, and when finally I opened my eyes he refused to meet them. 
He quite obviously wanted me to rest, to remain quiet, and he appeared to distrust his own emotional equipment. He was good enough, however, to enumerate the measures which had contributed to my restoration, and to enlighten me in all respects to the remnants. The clothes were all covered with blood, drenched, sir. I burned them. On the following day, he became more loquacious. It was wearing the clothes of the gentleman who was killed last voyage, sir. It was wearing Dr. Blodgett's things. I recognized them instantly. But why? The steward shook his head. I don't know, sir. Maybe your going up on deck saved you? Maybe it couldn't wait? It left a little after one of the last times, sir, and it was later then that when I saw you to your stateroom, the ship may have passed out of its zone, sir. Or maybe it fell asleep and couldn't back in time, and that's why it dissolved. I don't think it's gone for good. There was blood on the curtains in Dr. Blodgett's cabin, and I'm afraid it always goes that way. It will come back next voyage, sir. I'm sure of it. He cleared his throat. I'm glad you rang for me. If you'd gone down to your stateroom, it might be wearing your clothes next voyage. Havana failed to restore me. Haiti was a black horror, a repellent quagmire of menacing shadows and alien desolation, and in Martinique I did not get a single hour of undisturbed sleep in my room at the hotel. A Vintage from Atlantis by Clark Ashton Smith Thank you, friend, but I am no drinker of wine, not even if it be the rarest canary or the oldest amontillado wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging and more than others. I have reason to know the truth that was writ by Solomon to Jewish king. Give ear, if you will, and I shall tell you a story such as would halt the half-drained cup on the lips of the hardiest biber. We were seven-and-thirty buccaneers who raked the Spanish main under Barnaby Dwale, he that was called Red Barnaby for the spilling of blood that attended him everywhere. Our ship, the Black Falcon, could outfly and outstrike all other craft that flew the Jolly Roger. Full often, Captain Dwale was wont to seek a remote isle on the eastward verge of the West Indies, and lighten the vessel of its weight of ingots and doubloons. The isle was far from the common course of maritime traffic, and was not known to maps or other mariners, so it suited our purpose well. It was a place of palms and sands and cliffs, with a small harbor sheltered by the curving outstretched arms of rugged reefs on which the dark ocean climbed and gnashed its fangs of white foam, without troubling the tranquil waters beyond. I know not how many times we had visited the isle, but the soil beneath many a cocoa tree was heavy with our hidden trove. There we had stored the loot of bouillon-laden ships, the massy plate and jewels of cathedral towns. Even as to all mortal things, an ending came at last to our visits. We had gathered a goodly cargo, but might have stayed longer on the open main where the Spaniards passed, if a tempest had not impended. We were near the secret isle, as it chanced, when the skies began to blacken, and wallowing heavily in the rising seas, we fled to Placid Harbor, reaching it by nightfall. Before dawn the hurricane had blown by, and the sun came up in cloudless amber and blue. We proceeded with the landing, and bearing of our chest of coins and gems and ingots, which was a task of some length, and afterward we refilled our water casks at a cool sweet spring that ran from beneath the palmy hill not far inland. It was now mid-afternoon. Captain Dwale was planning to weigh anchor shortly and follow the westering sun towards the Caribbees. There were nine of us, loading the last barrels into the boats with Red Barnaby looking on and cursing us for being slower than mud turtles, 
and we were bending knee-deep in the tepid, lazy water, when suddenly the captain ceased to swear, and we saw that he was no longer watching us. He had turned his back and was stooping over a strange object that must have drifted in with the tide after the storm, a huge and barnacle-laden thing that lay on the sand, half in and half out of the shoaling water. Somehow none of us had perceived it heretofore. Red Barnaby was not silent long. "'Come here, ye chancre-eaten coistrels,' he called to us. We obeyed willingly enough and gathered around the beached object, which our captain was examining with much perplexity. We too were greatly bewondered, when we saw the thing more closely, and none of us could name it offhand with certainty. The object had the form of a great jar, with a tapering neck and a deep, round, abdominous body. It was wholly encrusted with shells and corals, that had gathered upon it as if through many ages in the ocean deeps, and was festooned with weeds and sea-flowers, such as we had never before beheld, so that we could not determine the substance of which it was made. At the order of Captain Dwell we rolled it out of the water, and beyond reach of the tide, into the shade of nearby palms, though it required the efforts of four men to move the unwieldy thing, which was strangely ponderous. We found that it would stand easily on the end, with its top reaching almost to the shoulders of a tall man. While we were handling the great jar, we heard a swishing noise from within, as if it were filled with some sort of liquor. Our captain, as it chanced, was a learned man. By the communion cup of Satan, he swore, if this thing is not an antique wine jar, then I'm a bedlamite. Such vessels, though mayhap, though they were not so huge, were employed by the Romans to store the goodly vintages of Falernus, and Secuba. Indeed, there is today a Spanish wine, the Valdepeñas, which is kept in earthen jars. But this, if I mistake not, is neither from Spain nor olden Rome. It is ancient enough by its look to have come from that long sunken isle, the Atlantis, whereof Plato speaks. Truly, there would be a rare vintage within, a wine that was mellowed in the youth of the world, before the founding of Rome and Athens and which, perchance, has gathered fire and strength of the centuries. Ho, oh, my rascal sea-bullies, we sail not from this harbor till the jar is broached, and if the liquor within be sound and potable, we shall make holiday this evening on the sands. Be like tis a funeral urn full of plaguy cinders and ashes, said the mate Roger Aglone, who had a gloomy turn of thought. Red Barnaby had drawn his cutlass, and was busily prying away the crust of barnacles and quaint fantastic coral groves from the top of the jar. Layer on layer of them he removed, and swore mightily at this increment of forgotten years. At last a great stopper of earthenware, sealed with a clear wax that had grown harder than amber, was revealed by his prying. The stopper was graven with queer letters of an unknown language, plainly to be seen, but the wax refused the cutlass point. So, losing all patience, the captain seized a mighty fragment of stone, which a lesser man could scarcely have lifted and broke herewith the neck of the jar. Now, even in those days, I, Stephen Magbone, the one Puritan amid that Christless crew, was no biber of wine or spirituous liquors, but a staunch Rechabite on all occasions. Therefore, I held back, feeling a little concern other than that of reprobation while others pressed about the jar and sniffed giddily at the contents. But almost immediately, with its opening, my nostrils were assailed by an odor of heathen spices, heavy and strange. 
and the very inhalation thereof caused me to feel sort of giddiness, so I thought it well to retreat still further. But the others were eager as midges around the fermenting vat in autumn. Some blood! Tis a royal vintage, roared the captain, after he had dipped a forefinger in the jar and sucked the purple drops that dripped from it. A vast ye slum gullions, stow the water casks on board, and summon all hands ashore, leaving only a watch there to ward the vessel. We'll have a gala night before we sack any more Spaniards. We obeyed his order, and there was much rejoicing amid the crew of the Black Falcon at the news of our finding and the postponement of the voyage. Three men, grumbling sorely at their absence from the revels, were left on board, though in that tranquil harbor such vigilance was virtually needless. We others returned to the shore, bringing a supply of pannikins in which to serve the wine and provisions for a feast. Then we gathered pieces of driftwood from which to build a great fire and caught several tortoises along the sands and unearthed their hidden eggs so that we might have an abundance and variety of victuals. In these preparations I took part with no special ardor. Knowing my habit of abstention and being of a somewhat malicious and tormenting humor, Captain Dwell had expressly commanded my presence at the feast. However, I anticipated nothing more than a little ribaldry at my expense, as was customary at such times, and being partial to fresh tortoise meat, I was not wholly unresigned to my lot as a witness of the Babylonian inebriates of the others. At nightfall the feasting and drinking began, and the fire of driftwood, with eerie witch colors of blue and green and white, amid the flames leapt high in the dusk, while the sunset died to a handful of red embers far on purpling seas. It was a strange wine that the crew and captain swilled from their pannikins. I saw that the stuff was thick and dark, as if it had been mingled with blood, and the air was filled with the reek of those pagan spices, hot and rich and unholy, that might have poured from a broken tomb of antique emperors. And stranger still was the intoxication of that wine, for those who drank it became still and thoughtful and sullen, and there was no singing of lewd songs, no playing of apish antics. Red Barnaby had been drinking longer than the others, having begun to sample the vintage while the crew were making ready for their revel. To our wonderment, he ceased to swear at us after the first cupful, and no longer ordered us about, or paid us any heed, but sat peering into the sunset with eyes that held the dazzlement of unknown dreams. And one by one, as they began to drink, the others were likewise affected, so that I marveled much at the unwanted power of the wine. I had never before beheld an intoxication of such nature, for they spoke not nor ate, and moved only to refill their cups from the mighty jar. The night had grown dark as indigo, beyond the flickering fire, and there was no moon, and the firelight blinded the stars. But one by one, after an interval, the drinkers rose from their places and stood staring into the darkness toward the sea. Unquietly they stood and strained forward, peering intently as men who behold some marvelous thing, and queerly they muttered to one another with unintelligible words. I knew not what they stared and muttered thus, unless it was because of some madness that had come upon them from the wine. For naught was visible in the dark, and I heard nothing save the low murmur of wavelets lapping on the sand. Louder grew the muttering, and some raised their hands and pointed seaward, babbling wildly as if in delirium, noting their demeanor and doubtful as to what further turn their madness might take. I bethought me to withdraw along the shore, but when I began to move away, those who were nearest me appeared to waken from their dream and restrained me with rough hands. 
Then, with drunken, gibbering words, of which I could make no sense, they held me helpless while one of their number forced me to drink from a pannikin filled with the purple wine. I fought against them, doubly unwilling to quaff that nameless vintage, and much of it was spilled. The stuff was sweet as liquid honey to the taste, but burned like hellfire in my throat. I turned giddy, and sort of confusion possessed my senses by degrees, and I seemed to hear and see and feel as in the mounting fever of a calendar. The air about me seemed to brighten with a redness of ghostly blood that was everywhere, a light that came not from the fire nor from the nocturnal heavens. I beheld the faces and forms of the drinkers, standing without shadow, as if mantled with a rosy phosphorescence, and beyond them, where they stared in troubled and restless wonder, the darkness was illuminated with a strange light. Mad and unholy was the vision that I saw, for the harbor waves no longer lapped on the sand, and the sea had wholly vanished. The black falcon was gone, and where the reefs had been, great marble walls ascended, flushed as if with the ruby of lost sunsets. Above them were haughty domes of heathen temples and spires of pagan palaces, and beneath were mighty turrets and streets and causeways, where people passed in a never-ending throng. I thought that I had gazed upon some memorial city, such as had flourished in earth's prime, and I saw the trees of his terrace garden, fairer than the palms of Eden. Listening, I heard the sound of dulcimers that were sweet as the moaning of women and the cries of horns that told forgotten glorious things, and the wild sweet singing of people who passed to some hidden sacred festival within the walls. I saw that the light poured upward from the city and was born of its streets and buildings. It blinded the heavens above, and the horizon beyond was lost in a shining mist. One building there was a high fane above the rest, from which the light streamed in a ruddier flood, and from its open portals music came, sorcerous and beguiling as the far voices of bygone years, and the revelers passed gaily into its portals, but none came forth. The weird music seemed to call me and entice me, and I longed to tread the streets of the alien city, and a deep desire was upon me to mingle with its people and pass into the flowing fane. Verily I knew why the drinkers had stared at the darkness, and had muttered amongst themselves in wonder. I knew that they had also longed to descend into the city, and I saw that a great cosy, made of marble and gleaming with the red luster, ran downward from their very feet over meadows of unknown blossoms to the foremost building. Then as I watched and listened, the singing grew sweeter, the music stranger, and the rosy luster brightened. Then, with no backward glance, no word or gesture of injunction to his men, Captain Dwayle went slowly forward, treading the marble causey like a dreamer who walks in his dream. And after him, one by one, Roger Aglone, and the crew followed in the same manner, going toward the city. Happily, I too should have followed, drawn by the witching music, for truly it seemed that I had trod the ways of that city in former time, and had known the things whereof the music told and the voices sang. Well, did I remember why the people passed eternally into the fane, and why they came not forth, and there it seemed I should meet familiar and beloved faces, and take part in mysteries recalled from the foundered years. All this which the wine had remembered through its sleep in the ocean depths was mine to behold and conceive for a moment, and well, it was that I had drunk less of that evil and pagan vintage than the others, and was less besotted 
than they with its searing vision. For even as Captain Dwell and his crew went toward the city, it appeared to me that rosy glow began to fade a little. The walls took on a wavering thinness, and the domes grew insubstantial. The rose departed, the light was pale as a phosphor of the tombs, and the people went to and fro like phantoms, with a thin crying of ghostly horns and a ghostly singing. Dimly, above the sunken causey of the harbor, waves returned, and Red Barnaby and his men walked down beneath them. Slowly the waters darkened above the fading fires and walls, and the midnight blackened upon the sea, and the city was lost like the vanished bubbles of wine. A terror came upon me, knowing the fate of those others. I fled swiftly, stumbling in darkness, towards the palmy hill that crowned the isle. No vestige remained of the rosy light, and the sky was filled with returning stars. And looking oceanward, as I climbed the hill, I saw a lantern that burned on the black falcon in the harbor, and discerned the embers of our fires that smoldered on the sands. Then praying with a fearful fervor, I waited for the dawn.